Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's nice to be, get a chance to be with you again in uh, Central this morning. Um, just before we come to look at the passage that uh, we have for, for our meditation today, everyone at church will be aware that this is Remembrance Sunday. And so we just want to take a moment or two, just to, in a very simple way, to reflect on that and to, and to remember. Um, just before the service started, I had a look at the war memorial that's in the porch of this church. There isn't, oddly enough, that I can find one to the Second World War, but there is one to the First World War. And in the First World War, this community of faith gave 41 young men who died and a large number of other young men who served. You can see the plaque on the wall on your way out. So we just want to take a moment or two to remember um, and uh, to reflect on, on that at this time. And it may be Maybe you know someone who serves in the armed forces. Maybe you have a relative or a friend who's there. Maybe you knew someone who did serve in the past. Uh, and so maybe you might like to recall that person to mind and mention their name uh, in the silence and the prayer that we're about to have. So if you don't like to stand with me just for a moment or two, we're going to leave a short gap in silence and then I'm going to pray. So let us remember. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who made for us the ultimate sacrifice. We thank you that he delivered himself to death, even death on a cross, but that he is raised, exalted, and ascended to your right hand. And for him and for what he did, we give you our thanks, the greatest sacrifice ever made on the soil of this planet, the greatest victory ever won. We give you thanks. We thank you also for those, Lord, who served in the armed forces of our country in two world wars in the previous century and in other conflicts since. We remember those who paid the ultimate sacrifice then, like the 41 young men from this fellowship. We remember them. We remember the families who were bereaved of them. We remember those who were wounded and who never really got their lives back afterwards. We remember those who serve and help uh, to take care of those who have been injured or bereaved through warfare. We give you thanks, our Father, for those who rule our country and for those who are responsible for its peace and security now and in the days to come. Be pleased, O oh God, we pray, to give wisdom to those who rule over us that all the horrors of war may never afflict this or the succeeding generations of our land and that the day may come soon when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to read from God's Word, and this is the book of the Acts, chapter 13. We're picking up the story where you left off last Sunday, and uh, we're at verse 4. This is God's Word. The two of them, that is 
Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There, they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And ending at verse 12, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. We've been kind of walking through the book of the Acts uh, this, this last few sessions in, in Christ Church. Uh, I forget where I am this morning. I'm not in Christchurch, I'm in Central. My life is very confused. Anyway, we've been walking through it in Central and uh, looking at the story of the early church. And, and the reality is that the story of the early church is a story of people who reach people. That's how it works. And sometimes that story takes place in the context of crowds, so days like the day of Pentecost where Peter preaches to thousands of people and there's a massive response to what he says. Or like Paul in the Areopagus in Athens talking to the really intelligent, cultured people of his generation. On the one hand, one person and a crowd. On the other hand, one-on-one, -on -one, individual conversations, individual lives, witness to and change. That's the story of the early church. And often the story is, is a one-on-one -on -one story. And in those situations, people are thrown together who under other circumstances in life would never be. I used to get my hair cut for years in a hairdresser's downtown in Belfast. Started going there when I was at university, and then I continued to go for years afterwards. And uh, the proprietor of the business was called Joe, and he was a bit of a character, as hairdressers often are. And... Uh, so at that time, I was doing a lot of radio work, doing thought for the day and stuff on the radio, and Joe's nickname for me was Radio Rev. <laughs> However, his nickname for Dave, who also got his hair cut there, was so much better than mine, because he discovered that Dave was a burgeoning rock star, and from then on called him McFly. So good to get my own back on the continual stories my son is telling about me. So when you see him in the future, McFly, okay? Anyway, I was going there to get my hair cut and over time you get to know the people who work and there was a particular girl in the shop called Margaret and if I could, I usually tried to get her to cut, her to cut my hair because I liked the way that she did it and got to know her a bit over the years. And I'm sitting in the chair one day and Margaret is cutting my hair. And uh, she said, I had a really interesting weekend last weekend. 
And when a hairdresser says that to you, you're not quite sure what the next story is going to be. I said, oh, really? Why was that? And she said, yeah. She said, uh, my mom's been on at me for years to go to church, but I don't really want to go to church. But she said she eventually persuaded me to go away last weekend to a retreat that the priest was running in our church. I said, oh, that, that's really interesting. What happened? Yeah, she said, it was. She said, you know, during the course of the weekend, she said, something amazing happened in my life. She said, I experienced the Holy Spirit, which had never happened to me before. All of a sudden, I understood who Jesus was. And she said, it completely changed my life. And she went on to talk about it. And then I realized what she was doing. She was witnessing to me. She was telling me about what Jesus had done in her life. I had sat in that chair by this stage for years. I had never spoken to her about my faith. After that, she decided to move on. She went to university to qualify herself as a nurse. I never met her after that. But what she did that day really spoke to me about that, that here was I being witnessed to by someone else, and I, the minister, had sat there all those years and had never shared my faith with her. The story of the New Testament church's expansion is, is largely a story of one-on-one conversations, like my conversation with Margaret. And Dr. Luke gives us two stories like that in this section from the book of the Acts that we just read a moment or two ago. John Stott says this, Luke surely intends us to view Sergius Paulus as the first totally Gentile convert who had no religious background in Judaism, Paul's direct approach to Gentiles was the great innovative development of this first missionary journey. Paul had one-on-one conversations with people who were a million miles from Jesus. And this this story, therefore, is the first step in the church becoming a truly Gentile phenomenon. Not now a sect of Judaism, but a church that is planted in the Gentile world, in our world. And it's authentically there because Paul has the, and others have these one-on-one conversations with people. And if this story is about anything else today, surely it's about encouraging you and me to have these one-on-one conversations. And in this particular passage, I want you to see that these kind of conversations happen with different kinds of people. There are two kinds of people in this story. The first one is this. These conversations sometimes happen with people who are hungry. You know from last week that Barnabas and Saul, who was later called Paul, we we normally call him Paul. So if I oscillate between Saul and Paul in this sermon, I'm talking about the same person, okay? So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the church at Antioch. Barnabas had come to Antioch originally as a safe pair of hands, People in Jerusalem heard something special was happening in Antioch, so they thought they'd better send down somebody wise whom they could trust just to check out that it was kosher. And so they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas realized he needed help, so he went to look for this guy called Saul, later called Paul, and he brought him to Antioch and mentored him. He mentored the early church's greatest evangelist. And that early church's greatest evangelist became, along with his mentor, the first missionaries of the church. What a story. And the first mission trip that 
Paul went on with Barnabas, took him to Cyprus. Why did they go to Cyprus? Well, there's a common sense reason why they went to Cyprus. And that was that Barnabas came from there. And if you were going to be called by God to be a missionary, where would you start? But obviously, where you know. He had connections there in the Jewish synagogues, no doubt. He knew the lie of the land. He knew the foibles of the Cypriots. He was one himself. And above all else, Barnabas loved these people. So where else would he take his apprentice to show him how to do this job? Cyprus was about 60 miles from Seleucia, which was the port city of Antioch. And the distance from that port city, Seleucia, 60 miles to the harbor at Salamis on, on Cyprus, which is where they went. It was, just, it was just a short sea trip of 60 miles. And, and Salamis itself was a large town, approximately 150,000 inhabitants at this time. And when they landed there, they took a road trip across the island, which would have taken them roughly 115 miles, ending up in Paphos at the opposite end of the island. And when you talk about that, you know, 60 miles to, to the island, 115 miles around, which they probably walked, by the way, it seems like a lot. But to put it in context of the life of Paul that's described in the book of the Acts, there are recorded their journeys which probably took Paul in excess of 12,000 miles. What a story. When they get to Paphos, the far end of the island, there is a Roman official there called Sergius Paulus. We don't know much about him, but there is evidence to suggest in, in documents exterior to the New Testament that he was a, a senator under Claudius and later a consul in Rome. So he genuinely was a guy with power and influence. He was educated, he was politically well-connected, and he was astute. But he was a man with spiritual concerns. And around us, every day, are people with spiritual concerns. Uh, Walter Isaac's biography of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, he talks about how when Jobs was younger and was working for Atari at the time, uh, that he went to visit, uh, he went on a, a trip to India uh, so he could see a particular guru who lived there and worked there. And commenting on Jobs at the time, he says this about him, he said there was a hole in his life that he was trying to fill. And it was the same with this guy, Sergius Paulus. He was hungry for something. He didn't know what it was. He wasn't quite sure where to look. And so Dr. Luke tells us that Sergio Paul, about Sergius Paulus, it says the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. And so here's a guy who's hungry. And because of what the missionaries said, and because of the power that they exercised in signs and wonders, we then read in verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed about the teaching about the Lord. He was the first truly Gentile convert. And the interesting thing was that this guy was ready and waiting. He was hungry. He was open for it. He was desperate for something. And at your side every day on public transport, 
in the cute Tesco, in the office where you work, there will be a Sergius Paulus. Someone who is looking for the truth, for hope, for meaning, and for joy. And you get to tell them. And they may be the most unlikely people in that space, wherever it is. The last one you would think of or the last one you actually want to engage with. One of my favorite stories is told by Frog and Amy or Ewan in the, in the book they wrote about church, which is called Deep. And they tell the story about friends of theirs who were missionaries to Iran. And the story goes like this. The husband and wife had felt that God wanted them to speak to people every day about Jesus. On one occasion, they drove up to a petrol station to refill their tank. The husband was about to get out of the car when his wife said, look, darling, go and speak to that man there. She pointed to a man who was standing next to the place where customers paid for their petrol. He was clearly an Islamic fundamentalist. He was dressed in that way. He had a gun with him. It was obvious that this was a tough call. So the husband said, thanks, darling, but you know, I don't really feel the Holy Spirit's leading me to talk to him. And he shut the door of the car and went in and paid for the petrol. As he got back into the car and drove off, they had a discussion that went something like this. You didn't speak to him, did you? I didn't feel led. The spirit wasn't drawing me to talk to him. I just didn't feel it was quite the right moment. So the wife said, darling, when we stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and that man doesn't go to heaven, I will say to Jesus, I wanted to tell him about you, but my husband wouldn't let me. The husband started shouting and throwing his arms around in the air. Turn the car around, he said. They put the accelerator on, drove back to the place, and as he got out of the car and slammed the door, he left with the immortal parting words, if you want a martyr for a husband, you can have one. He went up to speak to the man. As he started to talk to him, this man began to cry. And as the husband produced a Bible to give to him, this hardened extremist had tears flowing down his face. He said, Three days ago I had a dream and in that dream an angel appeared to me and told me to come here and wait and that someone would give me the book of life. I have been waiting for two days. Thank you so much for stopping. There and then, our friends led that man to faith in Christ. You can imagine the conversation in the car after that. All around you, every day, of your life, there is a Sergius Paulus. Somebody hungry, desperate, waiting for someone to bring a word of hope, to point them in a direction that will completely change their lives. The church grows because out there, around us every day, are hungry people waiting for us to speak. Perhaps the most unlikely people waiting for us to tell them what we know. The story concerns a person who was hungry, but it also concerns a person who was trapped. Something else is going on here, above and beyond just the simple activity of Paul witnessing to his faith. We read in verse 8, Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. 
The reality was that in this situation in Cyprus, Barnabas and Paul found themselves in a battle they didn't start. An epic struggle far bigger than they were and that they couldn't resist in and of themselves. Elymas was a charlatan, as one modern version of the text says of him, but he was a dangerous charlatan. Paul says, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Paul identified quite clearly that this man was trapped. He was under the influence of the powers of darkness and evil, and his life had become a tool in the hand of someone else he couldn't control. And then Paul does something we don't expect him to do. Elymas was a fraud, and we expect Paul to expose him, to use his smarts to unmask the deceit, but that isn't what Paul does. We, we read that Paul says to him, now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And blind he was. The text said that he had to ask help to get himself out of the room because he couldn't see where the door was. And what's happening here? Well, there are two things happening here. The first one is this. Paul looked at Elymas the sorcerer and realized that there had been a time in his own life when he had been there too. That actually these two men were not different. They were virtually the same. Because just as Elymas was an opponent to the gospel of Jesus Christ, one time in his life, Paul had been in exactly the same situation, trapped, enclosed, in something that he couldn't control and that he didn't understand, opposing Jesus Christ and against him completely. It says in Acts 9, verse 8, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And now he was watching the same experience play out right before his eyes in the life of this guy called Elymas. In Sergius Paul's, Paul found someone open to hear the gospel. And to him, he explained its truth, demonstrated its power. But in Elymas, he saw someone trapped as he once had been, by a power much greater than himself. And so to Elymas, he spoke forcefully about where his life was going and prophesied darkness over him. The blindness was temporary, just as it had been for Paul. What either of them experienced in that darkness, we don't know. But that darkness made Paul ready for Ananias. And maybe there was an Ananias for Elymas. Maybe it was Paul himself in an unrecorded episode that took place some days later. You see, in this context where Elymas is opposing the gospel, trying to undermine what Paul is doing with the proconsul in Cyprus, Paul realized that Elymas wasn't his enemy. Elsewhere, Paul says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are not fighting people. That obnoxious person in your work who is constantly seeking to undermine, constantly seeking to 
destroy your witness and, and prevent you from being influential with other people. That person is not your enemy. We don't need smarts in these situations. We need power. Power endured through the struggles we have endured through faith, which enable us to recognize the same struggle in other people. And to speak not with violence, but with love into those situations. That's what happened here. Paul didn't condemn this man to lifelong blindness. It says in the text that he would be blind for a season. Paul loved him. He wanted to free him from the circumstances he was in, to spring the trap and get him out. The only way he could do it was this way. He could never argue him out of it. There was not going to be some rational explanation that was going to change Elemas' heart. The only thing that was going to change his heart was a demonstration of the power of God. I'm not saying those situations are easy. In the, uh, the New Bethel song, Here I Am, Lord, there's a verse that goes like this. If the truth cuts like an arrow, I'll say it anyway, because here I am, Lord, send me. If it means that they reject me, Lord, I will still obey. Here I am, Lord, send me. There's no guarantee that if you seek to work with seek to be honest with and open with that person who is opposed to you. There is no guarantee that they will hear the gospel and respond. But you're going to have a go anyway. Here I am, Lord. Send me. We see in others the darkness we face ourselves. And to, and to people like that, we are uniquely equipped to witness in your world, that person who is a thorn in your side spiritually, but in whom you recognize the same enemy who so nearly ruined your life, that is your most effective mission field. One of the things I've discovered since I was bereaved is how easy it is to talk to and to be supported and blessed by people who have been through the same experience. There is so much that no one needs to say and yet so much that that other person understands. And Paul immediately knew that. He looked at this guy and he thought to himself, I know who you are. I know what is going on in your heart. I know how tough it is to be where you are right now and I know the only thing that can set you free. And then he went ahead and prophesied over him. You are all in Cyprus right now with Barnabas and Saul. All around you, every day, there are people like Sergius Paulus, hungry, open, waiting to hear. To them, your witness will potentially be effective. You will be able to explain to them what happened to you and how God changed you, and you may win them for the kingdom of Jesus Christ by telling them your story. Watch out for the hungry but around you also are the trapped. People who are struggling with exactly the same sins and issues that once nearly destroyed your life. And you are uniquely equipped to demonstrate to them the love and power of God that can spring the trap and set them free. Come on.
Let's do this. If it's bandaging the broken or washing filthy feet, here I am, Lord, send me. If it's loving one another, even when we don't agree, here I am, Lord, send me. If I'm poor, if I'm wealthy, I'll serve you just the same. Here I am, Lord, send me. On the mountain or in the valley, I will choose to stay. Here I am, Lord, send me. If I'm known by how I love, let my life reflect how much I love you. I love you. And before you even ask, oh, my answer will be yes. Here I am, Lord, send me. The Christian church grew partly through one-on-one conversations with hungry people who were ready to listen and with trapped people who needed to be set free. And they're around us every day. We just need to begin to have that revealed to us, to become sensitive to it, start doing what Jesus called us to do. Here I am, Lord sent me.